0: Welcome to the Soulless Church Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Our passion as a church community is to see Jesus at the center of all things.
1: For more sermon content and information, check out soullesschurch.com. Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. And this is the word of the Lord, for which we say, thanks be to God. Father in heaven, we...
0: Settle our hearts for a moment here in the midst of this gathering to ask you to open our hearts, open our minds, open our lives to what you want to do. We think of the words of Jesus who taught us to pray. May your will be done, God your will, not ours, but may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's our prayer for this time, that, God, you would accomplish your will, that you would find hearts available and willing for your will to come to pass. And so, God, that's why we have your word open, which is the source of your will. And we ask today, God, that you would use your word by the power of your spirit to further lead us and bring us where you're calling us to go, to make us who you're calling us to be. We invite you, Holy Spirit, as we are even reflecting on here in the passage, the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Holy Spirit, would you come? Would you pierce our hearts with your word? Would you speak to us? God, I've prepared something as I do each week, but really right now we just come to you in dependence and ask Holy Spirit, come and do something. Speak to us in a way that only you can. We ask you to do that today, God, and we ask you to give us ears to hear what you want to say. We pray this in Jesus' name, Amen, Amen. You may be seated. Okay, we've been in the book of Ephesians this year. It's an understatement. We have been in the book of Ephesians, and we could be in this book for ten years. It's just so dense so rich with helpful truth about really uh, who Jesus is and how who he is and what he's done comes to bear on our lives and changes our lives. Paul originally wrote this letter to a young church like ours in Ephesus or modern-day Turkey, a young church that Paul is encouraging to be faithful in Jesus, that two-word phrase that's used all throughout this book. The Christian life is meant to be lived from a position rooted in the person and work of Jesus. We can forget that. We want to make sure we get first things first. Uh, that Jesus is someone to live in before he's someone to live for and do things for. We must abide in him to bear fruit for him. And so that's kind of all of Ephesians. is looking each week at a different, different sections from this lens. And uh, look at this number here. This is part eight. It's impressive. That's a catalog right there. In chapter six here. We are exploring. We've been exploring. We've got one more week of this in the, the, um, the spiritual warfare section here. Uh, Pastor Nate Gallagher from, from Calvary Vero Beach, a friend of ours who comes a lot, he'll be here next week teaching uh, for us from that final uh, aspect of warfare there with prayer. And uh, after Christmas, we'll close out Ephesians before the new year. We will be done with Ephesians before 2024, I promise. Literally a day before 2024 is when we'll finish it. Um, But again, for the past eight weeks, we have been walking through this really unique section of Ephesians where Paul has done something really helpful for all of us, and especially this church. Paul has zoomed out from all that he's called us to do here on earth and here and now. He's zoomed out to remind us of the greater context that all of our lives fall in, with all of our desires to serve Jesus, walk with Jesus, know Jesus, Paul's reminding us that that fight is greater than any fight against the flesh, any fight against yourself or, or someone else. But there is a spiritual battle into which we all find ourselves, especially as followers of Jesus. Uh, every person is involved in this spiritual battle because it's the battle of the cosmos. It's a, a reality that's going on whether we recognize it or not. But as followers of Jesus, not only are we in this battle, but we're called to fight this battle. To fight from the victory that Jesus gives us. To fight with the weapons that he's provided us. This is really the big idea. The vision here in Ephesians 6 is that of a real serious, kind of scary uh, battle that we're up against. But it's meant to lead us ultimately to see the provision God has made to equip us for victory. Now the metaphor Paul uses, as we know by now, is the armor of God. You learned about this in VBS, and now you're learning about it in your adult years, and it's still helpful. This illustration that Paul uses, this metaphor for the ways that God has provided for our defense and victory in battle. That's the big idea of Ephesians, that we have in Christ all that we need to live the lives God has called us to. He hasn't left us lacking. He hasn't left us deficient of what we need to be victorious, even though we face defeat. From time to time we're fighting towards and for victory with what he's provided now the armor of god it, it, it's it's coming from the the armor of a roman soldier and paul is calling us to take up the different aspects of our spiritual armor this metaphor to fight he describes three aspects of the armor that we're to have on at all times so three to have on it's a breastplate you're to have on you got to have on your shoes and you got to what's the third one anybody remember your belt, got to have your belt on. There's nothing like, you know, you got everything. If you ever left, you didn't have your belt on. It's the worst feeling, okay? I'm just like, I'm going to go home. I can't work today. I don't have my belt on. All right, so Paul says three things to have on, and then he describes three things to take up. Your everyday carries, the things you take with you, your keys, your whatever else you might fill in the blank with, but there's things that we're to be prepared with and have in hand, especially if we're going to face the spiritual battle, and that begins there in verse 16. He says, take the shield of faith, Got to have your shield represented by faith to quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. And then he says two more things to take up. Last week we talked about take the helmet of salvation, the hope of salvation, to protect our minds from whatever may come our way. And then this morning we're looking at this last piece of the armor that Paul calls us to take up, and that is to take up, let's zero in on this, the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. The sword of the spirit. Last aspect of the metaphor here. And Paul is not, you know, kind of remembering these as he's charting them out. And like, oh yeah, also this one. I think in a lot of ways, Paul has mentioned the others and then he gets to what is the primary weapon of the soldier. The sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Uh, A Roman soldier had generally three different kinds of swords or three different kinds of offensive weapons or daggers. The first was his spear or his javelin. It's about two-thirds wood, and then another third of that was sharpened metal. And that was, you know, think of like the classic war movie. That's that thing that goes flying from far distances or pokes out your shield to keep them away. You know people that have those plants like that in front of their house? Do you have some of those? Those always, I'm like sometimes I'll be like walking with my kids, and I'll be like, oh, watch out for the death plant. You ever seen those? You might... Get impaled and die. Anyway, javelins. So that's the first weapon that uh, the, the, the Roman soldier would have. The second would be, uh, we'll, we'll think of it this way. We'll, we'll kind of jump to the last one. It would be like his last resort weapon, which was a small dagger that he would keep on his waist. So when, you know, the, when, when all else failed and he was left into tight spaces and had nothing left, he could all, that's usually like in a movie, right? They like pull out the last dagger and he, they kill the guy with the last dagger. That's, that's the other weapon. The third weapon that a Roman soldier would have on himself is the weapon that Paul describes here in the Greek. The word sword that he uses is, is uh, the common sword of a Roman soldier that was about two feet long and was fastened to his belt and on him mostly at all times. Here's a little image of that sword. Um, a modern, I don't know if this is like CGI or... Chat G P something I don't know but this is this is this is what it looks like okay Uh, it's got some uh, bone there on the handle it's got a guard there Uh, this was called a gladius a gladius if you're thinking of for a second like this is the sword that Maximus Decimus Meridius used in the movie Gladiator and it's the common sword of a Roman soldier we could also say it this way it was his primary Weapon, listen again, this sword, this gladius, wasn't just unique to Russell Crowe, but every Roman soldier made sure that they would have their gladius. In fact, we'll say it this way, if for some reason, in some occasion, a soldier had to spring into action, the one thing he would grab would be his sword. Come on, We've all had those nights, right? Gentlemen, you know what I'm talking about? You ever had those events? 2 a.m., 3 a.m.? And sometimes I'm the only one that hears something and I'm probably dreaming. But I have those moments where I'm forced to, what was that? Well, it was like probably the air conditioner or something. But it could be, we're, we always need to be prepared for that intruder situation. And so you check the Nest camera. You, sh- you go, is that my dog? My dog like has these long, he like clicks around the house at night. So sometimes I'm like, was that him? But you ever been there, gentlemen, where, like, you have to spring into action? You don't have time to put your shoes on. You go out with what you got on. You do your best to make the, the most of the moment, and you grab, hopefully, something worthwhile. When Brittany and I first got married, I was pretty much useless as a protector of our family. Like, 21 years old, like, really young, and what am I going to do, really, except, like, get to my phone and call the police fast or something? Or go to the bathroom? Like, I, I, there was really not much by way of defense when we first got married um this stuff would happen and I used to have this pretty still makes fun of me for it I had the only weapon I had was this little knife that someone gave me I don't know why I don't remember why if they're like hey here's a knife maybe they're like you don't have anything take this like protect your family but it was like one of those knives like your fingers can fit in the grooves with I felt kind of like John Wick with it but it um and it had like an inch and a half, two-inch blade on it. It was pretty much a glorified butter knife. And the best part about it was it had like dragons on the side of it. It was like my dragon knife. It's like, so you came in my house, you just would laugh at me. i would be like, watch out. Anyway. I've matured and grown my arsenal since then, in case you're wondering. But that, that's what we're to have as a concept for a Roman soldier, like the one thing he's grabbing, he's going to rush into battle without his shoes on. He, he, he won't have a helmet. He won't have his breastplate. If it's a matter of springing into action, he's going to grab his gladius, this primary weapon. Which here in Ephesians 6, as Paul is using, certainly knowing the cultural context and speaking to a Christian's provision in battle, Paul correlates... This sword, this primary weapon, notice this, to the word of God. If nothing else, if from time to time you lose sight of the righteousness you have in Jesus, if from time to time you forget to put on the shoes of the gospel of peace, if nothing else, if you find yourself from time to time failing to be fully equipped in the battle, Paul's like, at least have your sword as the source of the victory you truly need, the word of God. Paul describes the word of God as the primary weapon here of the Christian soldier. Um, this is also our primary weapon in the spiritual battle. Not our experiences, not our emotions even, I mean, there's so many different things that Paul could have used here to describe the one thing that we're going to take to the mat here in hand-to-hand combat, but it's the Word of God. The sword of the Spirit is the key word there. So many examples in the Bible of how God works for and through his people, through the power of his Word. The sword of the Spirit. Um, It's interesting. It's kind of helpful to get an idea of what Paul is talking about here. The Word Word there in the Greek is not the common word that's used in the New Testament. The common word is logos, usually used of Jesus, who's the word, the logos made flesh. Or the written word of God is the logos. But here, as Paul's describing our sword, the word that's used here in Greek for word is rhema, R-H-E-M-A, rhema. The weapon of the spirit for us in spiritual battle is the rhema of God. Uh, the difference between a logos and a rhema. A logos is a written word. It's, it's, it's the written word of God. But the rhema is the spoken word of God into a specific situation. Uh, an example of this is Mary at Christmas saying, let it be to me, to this angel that brings this news to her life and her situation. She says, let it be to me according to your rhema, according to your word the idea of the rama is the appropriation or the application of god's word to a specific situation and notice here that this is the sword of the spirit another way we could say this is this is the ministry of the holy spirit in your and my life in battles that we face it's the job of the holy spirit the faithful work of the holy spirit to bring to our minds the Word of God like a sword, applied to the situation to defend us. That's the idea. The applied word of God, this is what Jesus said. in John 14, he's trying to prepare his disciples for his departure. And one of the main ways that he's preparing them for him leaving is he's trying to train them to have the, the same dependence they've had on Jesus for everything. like and I mean everything, like we're in a storm. Jesus is here. Everything's going to be okay. We need to pay our taxes. We can just go fishing and there'll be coins in the fish's mouths, you know? Like, we're hungry. That dude multiplies lunchables like it's nobody's business, okay? The disciples had come to depend on Jesus for any and everything. And Jesus now, as he's departing, he wants them to know that he's going to send them another helper of the same kind or quality as his own presence. And the Holy Spirit is going to give them and be for them all that they need, just as Jesus was for them. Present, the Holy Spirit will be as well in their lives. And he tells them, The Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, notice the ministry of the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. So this is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. The sword of the Spirit is the Word of God. The ministry of the Spirit is to take that which God has said, that you've studied, that you've known, that you've invested and sown into your heart, and bring it back to your recollection, to apply it to your situation. This is the job of the Holy Spirit. And I think this is an important reminder that this is what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Whatever our ideas about being filled with the Holy Spirit may be, um, at the very center of you being filled with the Holy Spirit should look something like you knowing and applying God's Word. We have make the Holy Spirit out to be... Uh, more, I think, in mystery than he is in substance as someone who's there to get us to obey and live into God's word for the sake of flourishing. And, and so, and also today we've made this like false uh, dichotomy or this false, um, what's the word for it? It's, it's this false, um, uh, we've made these things, here's the phrase, we've made two things mutually exclusive that aren't. And that is the spirit of God and the word of God. It's like, are you a Holy Spirit person or are you a Bible person? It's like, yes. How can I be one without the other? How can I have the Word of God without the Spirit who inspired the Word of God? How can I know God's Word without the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in my life? I'm filled with the Spirit, therefore I'm filled with the application of God's Word. We don't have to reconcile friends here the Holy Spirit of God hovers over the waters of God's word and brings God's truth, God's truth to bear in our lives. So here's the big idea of what Paul is getting at here in Ephesians 6. He's like, hey Christian, you're in a spiritual battle. And you must in the battle have a kind of relationship to God's word and God's spirit that enables you to fight against what comes against you because of His work and his provision. You you must use God's word like a sword, the idea of like swordsmanship. So when the enemy comes attacking, the spirit of God empowers me to fight back with the word of God. Now, is there a better example of this than the gospel of Matthew chapter 4? And you can go ahead and turn there with me. In Matthew chapter 4, we see um, Jesus, the captain of our salvation. We see him wielding the sword of the Spirit. We see the swordsmanship of the Savior in Matthew 4. And he's quite a tactician, okay? Like a, also, that was kind of the idea. Like a Roman soldier, he didn't just have a sword, but he knew how to, how to use it. He, he, it was like one with him. And that's the picture of how God's word should be with us, rightly handling the word of truth, being able to apply it to what comes our way. And Jesus is the master example of this in the midst of spiritual warfare in Matthew 4. Matthew 4 Verse 1, the context of this section is a very peculiar verse that if we had more time to explore, we could probably get somewhere with it, uh, or at least begin to scratch the surface. But look at this mixture of events here. Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. We joked about this a couple weeks ago when we sing the song Spirit Lead Me into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Like I don't think that's what we often have in mind. With like, I just want to be a spirit-led person. God's like, sure, okay. And so here Jesus, before beginning his public ministry, is being led by the spirit into a... Listen, can I remind you that God is sovereign over the temptations you face? He's sovereign over the seasons you're in. To, to be truly led by the spirit doesn't mean you, you're not tempted. It doesn't mean that you're not tried. That's the symbol of 40 in the Bible. But it's often the indication... That what you're going through is not for nothing, but it's for testing and proving and developing you. So Jesus, even himself, he's led by the Spirit, and here's what he's led to. He's led into the wilderness to be tempted, and the word there is also to be tested by the devil, to be tried by the devil. Maybe you've had seasons like this, where it just feels like you and some sort of spiritual foe are going one-on-one, and maybe there's more than, than just one, but... You, you might know what it's like to be in situations like this where you're doing battle. Uh, what we see in Matthew 4 is every time Jesus is confronted by the enemy, every time he's tempted, every time there's a word or a thought or a lie or a concept brought to Jesus by the devil here in Matthew 4, Jesus replies three times with, notice this, it is written. This is his tactic in Matthew 4. Not, it is common. Or not, you know, in the midst of the temptation, you know, it is, it's being sensed. What am I feeling? Jesus appeals to a highest authority to do battle with what's coming against him. This is his swordsmanship skills. He, he says, what does God's word say? And then he applies it to his situation, wielding that sword in battle. Let's, let's look at this. There's three, basically three big ideas and ways that Jesus uses God's word as a sword in the face of the of those temptations coming his way, and we want to employ these as well. The first thing is, jot this down. We see Jesus uses God's word as a sword to cut out the noise. The first usage of God's word as a sword. Jesus uses God's word as a sword to cut out the, the spiritual noise from the enemy coming into his radar, coming into his mind. Cuts out the noise with the word of God as a sword. It tells us this, that when Jesus had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, it says, this, is a, this usually happens, afterward he was hungry. For me, it's sometimes like 40 minutes, but it's okay. It says, now, when the tempter came to him, Jesus is now, he's at the peak of a fast. This is the highest, this is the, the limit of what a human body can handle. He's maxed out there, and it's, let me point this out, it's at his moment of greatest vulnerability. Notice Satan doesn't come to Jesus at day 30 or day 20. It's right at the, it's at his most vulnerable, physically, mentally weak moment. Which we're going to talk about is right after his highest moment. Usually happens. You go up on the mountain, you have a great moment with God, and then boom, right to the pit of, of real life. It's easy to beat up the devil when you're on the mountaintop, isn't it? It's like, look at me in the glory of the Lord. Get out of my face. You know what I'm saying? I know God's word. I feel strong in him. I have a strong sense of his presence. You know, I'm not usually attacked after I've spent time in God's Word, filled with His promises and 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 left failing. I'm usually bold and confident in what He's just said. But here it's at a low point. It's at a low point. The he was patient, waiting, and he comes right at that moment. Notice what he does. He comes to Jesus. I want you to notice the first temptation that he brings to Jesus. He says, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. Now, there's two things going on in this temptation. One is like a front door thing. Another is kind of a back door thing. The front door an obvious thing is, Well, Jesus is being tempted, as we all are, with carbs. (laughs) You know? You know what I'm saying? And they just keep bringing that bread like it's nobody's business. (laughs) Extra butter. I mean, Jesus is hungry. There's a front door thing going on. Jesus is being tempted. Listen, he is the Adam number two. He's the second Adam. The first Adam was tempted in that first event there in the garden. And and here we're going to see Jesus is tempted with what what John says is all that's in the world. There's generally three temptations you'll face in life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. When Eve and Adam were tempted to eat, the Bible says about Eve that she saw that the food was good. The the food was going to be good for her. That it was pleasurable to the eyes. That it was able to make her wise. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. These are the temptations we face. So, so where where Adam failed, in a second, um, our second Adam, Jesus is going to succeed. He's going to be victorious from the temptations that the first Adam fell into. That's the front door thing. Jesus here is being tempted with the lust of his flesh, and we all know what it's like to be tempted to follow our flesh. But there's something deeper going on. This temptation, believe it or not, is not about carbs. The key to this temptation is the first thing that Satan whispers when he says, if you are the Son of God. That's the temptation. If you are, if you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. The temptation here is, Jesus, prove it with a miracle. If this is who you really are, prove it. Now, why is this a temptation? Because Satan is asking Jesus, listen, to prove something that God already has. Something that's already been settled. Listen to this. It's just a few verses earlier in Matthew chapter 3 when Jesus is baptized. Jesus is baptized. He comes up out of the water and behold, the heavens are open to him. And he, and, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly, notice this, a voice came From heaven. This is the word of God, the Rhema word of God being spoken over Jesus, saying, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. This is the voice of affirmation and affection of the Father over Jesus. God said to him, You are my beloved son. That's the highest authority, that's the ultimate voice. But now the truth of that is being tested. Jesus, prove it. God never said go out into the world and prove to, to, you know, through these random miracles. Jesus came to be about his father's business, to do whatever he called him to do, not what the enemy would tempt him to do. So there's a temptation here to prove what has already been settled. Now, I want you to notice this, and we get more insight into this in the next verse. Notice how Jesus replies to this temptation. This is one of many temptations. By the way, we face this temptation all the time to do things in the flesh to prove something to people. You ever done that? You ever said something? You ever acted, you ever acted a disingenuous way or like a, you, you had this facade of something because you wanted to, maybe you were lacking affirmation from the Father, so you wanted to get it from someone else? And so God's voice is kind of pushed aside, and you have to prove your identity or prove something to others in the flesh? Jesus replies and says, It is written. Notice this. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Okay? What is Jesus doing here? Well, in the midst of the noise, there's a lot of noise, isn't there? A lot of thoughts, a lot of ideas, a lot of temptations. Jesus pulls from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And he goes, okay, let me, let me, what he does here essentially is he cuts out the devil's tongue. And he lets God's word speak. And when he thinks about Deuteronomy 8.3, he's reminded, I live by what? The word of God. What has God's word said to me that I'm to live by? That I'm his beloved son in whom he's well pleased. So do you see what's going on here? Jesus is applying and appropriating the word of God to his situation. And that is what he uses to cut out the noise that comes his way. It's what we use as well. I want to point out an important fact here, though. Um, when Jesus quotes it is written, like this is an interesting concept. The, the idea here is that God's Word is in Jesus, and therefore he's prepared for it to come out of him in the situation that he's in. He, it's, it's in Jesus. This is not, you know Christ as uh, in his divinity, having all knowledge. It's going, well, I know all of the Bible. no Jesus. As a Jew in that time would have studied the Torah, had learned the Torah in his humanity. He would read Isaiah 53. He would learn what the Messiah would do. The Bible teaches us that he learned obedience. Jesus learned in his humanity. And because he learned God's word, this is what prepared him to wield his sword. Um, Listen, you cannot take up the word of God. You cannot take up the sword of the spirit if you don't first take root in the scripture. You have to take root in God's word. Here's what it says in Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Now we don't want that. We don't want the counsel of the ungodly leading us astray, nor stands in the paths of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. Here's the man who's blessed. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The idea is a picture of a person whose soul, mind, and heart are saturated with the word of God. And when that becomes you, here's... What you begin to look like, you look like a tree. This is your life. Like a tree that's planted by rivers of water. In the midst of all the noise and the stream of culture and the different feeds and streams coming our way, to be someone that's planted by the streams of the word of God and brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does, he shall prosper. The ungodly are not like so, but like the chaff which the wind drives away. This is the person who has invested themselves into God's word, like Jesus here, is able to cut out the noise through the application of God's word. So here's like a simple goal for your life. I would encourage, um, you know, New Year's resolutions coming up about a couple weeks away. Start thinking about what gym we're joining and what carbs we're avoiding, right? So here's a good goal for your, your New Year. Make it a goal to get into God's word And to get God's word into you. To get into God's word. To be like the man who's meditating on God's word day and night. And the the scripture comes to mind is, is Psalm 119, which says, to hide God's word in your heart. So that when trial comes your way, when temptation gets knocked at you, the work of the Spirit is to bring God's word out. And to apply it and to cut off the noise that comes your way. Amen? Hey, God's word as a sword cutting out the noise. We also see with Jesus, notice this next one, we see God's word as a sword. This is huge. Cutting through confusion. This is the next temptation. The sword of the spirit cutting out noise. Jesus going, I don't live by your word, I live by the word of God. He remembers that scripture, applies it to his situation, finds freedom in the word of God. And then we see God's word as a sword. Notice this next one, cutting through the confusion. Jesus is replying to the devil with scripture. So then it tells us this next tactic of Satan is, notice this, he, uh, the devil took him up into the holy city. He set him on the pinnacle of the temple, the highest point of the temple. And he said, if you are the son of God, same temptation, prove your identity, throw yourself down. You know, skydive, no parachute, go for it. Bungee jump with no bungee. Go for it, Jesus. And then notice what he does. He goes, oh, you're quoting the Bible? Well, speaking of it, is written, isn't it written? that his angels shall give charge over you in the Psalms, and into, in their hands they shall bear you up, lest your, you shall dash your, your foot against a stone. I want to point out that Satan knows Scripture. Isn't that interesting? Um, he, he, in this situation, is quoting Scripture back, but, but notice what's happening here. Uh, he is not using God's word as it's to be rightly used. Can we just establish that you can use something as good as God's word to do really bad things? Do we know that? Do you know that people have weaponized the scripture in history for all sort of unjust and evil, corrupt things? Where do they get that from? They get that from their father, the devil. God's word can be twisted and manipulated to bring all sorts of, listen, confusion. That's what Satan's doing. Satan's bringing confusion. He goes, well, Jesus, speaking of God's word. And, and imagine this. Here's Satan trying to confuse Jesus and go, wait a minute. Satan's the master manipulator. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 14 that God is not, let the, whatever your theology is, let this be at the center of it here. God is not the author of confusion. But of peace. So the, the implication here is someone is, right? It's not God. Who is it? Well, he's called Satan. He's the author of confusion. The author. He, he's writing the story of confusion. From the very beginning, as Satan comes against humanity, he seeks to come against humanity confusing their minds, confusing their thinking, confusing their ideas of God. Confusion altogether. He's the author of this confusion. I mean, I don't need to convince you too much of this. Like We see it everywhere we go. Um, Confusion is the condition of the day. Because the prince of the power of the air is roaming free. Confusion is the condition of the day. We're confused today. Satan is, is won. A lot of these battles of truth. We, we live in culture in a culture where people are confused. We're confused about what's right and wrong. Confu- who, can we really know what's right and wrong? Confusion. We're confused about how to navigate relationships. We're confused about our identities, our sexualities, our genders, our theology. There's confusion. There's confusion in the church. We're confused. Well, what do I believe?
1: I'm
0: not really sure. Maybe you've been there. You're like, I don't know what. And the enemy does this. He gets. He like he'll usually use church hurt to get you confused spiritually. Who's God? Does the church matter? Get confused in relationships. So Satan's the author of confusion, right? He's coming to Jesus. He's even using scripture to try to confuse Jesus. I love that Jesus doesn't change his tune or alter his tactic. He just says, it's written again, Satan. Back to God's word. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now, I think there's two points here. One point is, like, uh, read your whole Bible. You know what I'm saying? Read the whole thing. That's what Jesus does here. He's like, okay, like, that is in the Bible, but this this makes the bit greater picture more clear. What Jesus is ultimately doing, though, is, listen, he's using the authority of God's word to bring clarity where there's, quote, confusion. Listen closely. Quote, confusion. I want to call this... One of Satan's main tactics, and here's what it is it's the illusion of confusion. This is what Satan is it's smoke and mirrors. Well, doesn't it go? Well, doesn't it say this? And a lot of times, what what Satan does is he brings these things to our mind, and we're like, what it does is it kind of feeds into our egos, and we're like, yeah, it does say that in the Bible. I'm confused. I don't know what, I'm just gonna go this way. It's the illusion of confusion. God is not the author of confusion. The more you spend time in God's word, listen, you won't be more confused. You'll be more clear. Things will be clarified for you about who you are, about who God is, about what he's called you to. It's really, listen, not as confusing as we make it. As we make it. Now, listen, by the way, I'm not talking about the situation you're in right now where like you don't have all the answers from God about the thing you're praying, about the decision to make, where to move, what to do. There's a difference between confusion and uncertainty about every detail. But I will say this, that I believe this is true over your and my life today because of what God's word says. That you and I, listen, we have every bit of clarity that we need to obey God and be who he's called us to be. You and I have every bit of clarity, despite the illusion of confusion, you have every bit of clarity to be accountable to the God who created you and loves you. To walk in his ways. To honor him to be faithful, to bear the fruits of the Spirit. Stop making excuses. He's revealed himself to you in love and grace for you to bear fruit, for you to be who he's called you to be. This is what God says in Hosea 6. He says, my people are destroyed because of a lack of knowledge. That's the issue. The issue isn't confusion. The issue is ignorance. The issue is a rejection of the truth. The issue is a, oftentimes a hesitation to come under the truth of God's word. Satan comes with confusion. Jesus replies with the word of God like a sword to cut right through the confusion. So what are you confused about today that God's word has already made clear? Where are you allowing confusion to dominate your life rather than the revelation of God's word. Perhaps that's an area where Satan has a foothold in your life. And we want to be like Jesus. Listen, we're talking about being followers of Jesus. This is what he did. He cut right through it with the truth of God's word. Uh, There's an interesting example of this. I want to show you this. This is a really peculiar story. So if you you started to disengage, I'm going to bring you right back in with this story. Check this out. In the book of 1 Kings, we see a symbol of the word of God, the judgments of God used in a confusing situation. You ever read this story? It tells us this, 1 Kings 3. It says, now two, uh, it's about Solomon, two women who were harlots, helpful detail, came to the king and stood before him. And one woman said, oh my Lord, this woman and I dwell in the same house. And I gave birth while she was in the house. Then it happened the third day after I'd given birth that this woman also gave birth and we were together. No one was with us in this house except the two of us in the house. And this woman's son, who gave birth three days later, died in the night because she lay on him. So she arose in the middle of the night and she took my son from my side while your maidservant slept and laid him in her bosom and laid her dead child in my bosom. And when I rose in the morning to nurse my son, there he was dead when I examined him in the morning, indeed, he was not my son whom I had born. Then the other woman said, no, but the living one is my son, and the dead one is your son. And the first woman said, no, but the dead one is your son, and the living one is my son. So it's like a tennis match, like everyone's just kind of walking them, go back and forth. Thus they spoke before the king, and the king says, this one says, this is my son who lives, and your son is dead. And the other one says, no, but your son's the dead one and my son's the living one. Then the king said, check this out, bring me a sword. You'll see the picture, the type of the word of God here. So they brought a sword before the king. Remember, Solomon is the symbol in the Bible of God's entrusted judgment and righteousness. And God's God's word comes to Solomon to make him wise. Doesn't always make the wisest decisions, but he was a man of judgment and wisdom. So they brought a sword before the king. And The king said, well, simple. I do this with my kids all the time for things. Um, not living things, like, like food. Divide the living child in two. And get, give half to one and half to the other. Then the woman whose son was living spoke to the king, for she yearned with compassion for her son, of course. And she said, oh, my Lord, give her the living child. I and mean, obviously she preserved him living than her taking possession of his life or whatever was left. She said, give him the child and by no means kill him. But the other said, let him be neither mine nor yours, but divide him. It's like, okay, you might not be the mom, okay? You know? So the king answered, no, you don't need a DNA test there. It's just like, yep, okay. The king answered and said, obviously give the first woman the living child and by no means kill him. Obviously, we know what a mother is like, and that's clearly the mother. Notice this. And all of Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered. And they feared the king, for they saw the wisdom of God was in him to administer justice. So in the midst of a confusing situation, it's the sword that divides and brings clarity. And I'm telling you, in the cultural times we're in, A lot of fighting, a lot of confusion, a lot of illusion. There's something to right judgment in a confused culture. Right judgment is a bright light for the times that we're in. Something that people look on it and they go, where did this sort of... It's like, I'm not that smart, I just read the Bible. And this is God's word. And let me tell you this. This is how scripture actually judges the moral standing and character and quality of a person. Is how they relate themselves to the judgments of God. If you read the book of Proverbs where Solomon talks about this. He's like, your your relationship to the judgments of God and the truths of God dictate your moral quality. Whether as a righteous, wise person or as an unrighteous, foolish person. God's word cuts right through the confusion, bringing clarity. Let's go to the last one here. You got room for one more? Awesome. Okay, one more. One more. God's word as a sword cutting to the heart. This is the last thing we see. God's word as a sword cutting to the heart. So God's word cuts out the noise. It's a sword in spiritual battle to cut out the noise. We apply, we appropriate the truth of God's word to our circumstance, whatever the temptation will be. And when we live by God's word, we find freedom in the battle. We find victory. In God's word, it cuts right through the confusion, bringing clarity. And God's word functions as a sword, and it cuts to the heart. Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. You could say in some ways he cuts to the heart of the devil in this last temptation. The devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain. Satan's just, like, taking them higher and higher and higher. And with almost every temptation, there might be a, a greater degree of it. But Satan showed him all the kings of the world in their glory. Mark's version says Satan showed him all, of his, uh, all that he was able to give in his own authority. And Jesus doesn't argue with that. There's a sense of, of degree of ownership that Satan has, or stolen ownership, we could say, over the created order. <laughs> And he shows Jesus all the kings of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Jesus just worship me. I've convinced a third of the angels to do so. Why don't you do it now? And if you do it, I will give you all that is before you. And Jesus is just, at this point, he's just like hungry. You know what I'm saying? He's just like, just go away. <laughs> That's what he says. He said, like, go away, Satan. Get out of here, notice this, for, last time, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Now talk about serving, Jesus served the devil his lunch here. It says, then the devil left him. Satan had nothing else to say at this point, because here in the final temptation, Jesus cuts right to the heart of the matter. When Jesus quotes You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Jesus is taking a dig right at Satan's rebellion. He's taking a dig right at the heart of the situation, and Satan is left with nothing else to say. At the heart of the matter is that we're called to worship God and God alone. Listen, this is how God's word works in our lives. As we tend to beat around the bush, God's word is faithful like a sword to pierce to the heart, to the heart of the matter, to the heart of, of our condition, to the heart of man. This is a perfect reference here, isn't it? For Hebrews 4.12, the word of God. What is it? It's living, it's active and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. God's word cuts to the heart, cuts to the heart of of the matter, and it cuts to the heart of man. Um, The question isn't whether or not God's word cuts to your heart. It's how does your heart respond? We, We see an interesting example of this, this last thing here in Acts 2. Two separate occasions. Look at this. Acts 2, Peter's preaching, and when they heard Peter preaching, the men said that they were cut to the heart. This is what God's word does. It cuts right to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? You see the response? Uh, Peter's preaching God's word. I think sometimes in church we we care so much about stirring the emotions, we forget that it's God's word that cuts to the heart. And so Peter's preaching God's word. He's not just just about hype and let me get people feeling good and say something that's going to get you jazzed up on yourself. He speaks the truth of God's word because it gets where where nothing else can get. It gets right to the heart. And when these men are cut to their heart, notice the response. This this is the only true response that we should uh, offer to God when he cuts to our heart with His word. We go, what do you want me to do? You know what I'm talking about? Here's your word. Here's my heart. You see it as it is. That's what's true. How do I obey it? What do I do? Now, here's the second response. In Acts 7, Stephen preaches the same good news from God's word. It says that those that were listening, it says they were cut to the heart. Notice this. And they gnashed at Him with their teeth. How do you respond when God's word cuts to your heart? Is it surrender or is it resistance? Is it justification? Is it self-serving? Is it you-centered? Or have you allowed the Holy Spirit to do his full work in your life to where your heart actually belongs to God? He doesn't just want your, your behavior. It's, not, it's your heart he wants. Everything else follows these two examples. And as we close, I'll invite the team to come out. I thought this would be a good point to land on to conclude our time with a personal evaluation. Here's a final scripture that, again, as the band comes out to close us, we want to take into consideration what James 1 calls us to. I'll have this up on the screen. James 1 says, therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overthrow, overflow of wickedness. So like God's word is, is pretty clear. It it's, can be harsh, but it's, it's, it's harsh love is what it is. It's love. It's rooted in the reality of what's killing us, the sin, the excuses we've made, the distance we've caused, the, the illusions of confusion we've given into, the noise that we've followed. The the distractions that we're focused on rather than the heart of the matter. So James says that we should recognize the sin in our lives that's that's there. That rears its head. That builds up sometimes. And we should lay it aside. The idea there is that of taking off a garment. It's repenting over a way of life that I've been living in relationship to God's word. And notice the, the, the proper response. And receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. See, God doesn't speak to you or reveal his truth to you to hurt you. His word is your salvation. He wants to save you. He wants to save you to be who he's called you to be. Wherever, wherever quarter of life you find yourself in. So the call here is to say, God, I'm going to Stop taking this functional posture of being above your word. Where I kind of, like Satan even tempts, I I kind of pick and choose what I want to believe and follow. I'll build my politics around some of this, and I'll I'll build my virtues around this, and I'll build the, you know, I like the love your enemy things here. But salvation is found on the other side of me saying, God, I am under your word. I've, I've come full, blessed is he the man that God will look, that God looks upon with love and grace, he who trembles at God's word, whose heart says, God, your word is truth and I want to come under what you say and live a life of surrender to you in all things. Maybe you could look at your life today and you see the confusion, you see the noise, you see the distractions in your life. and There's a clear way forward for you and it's on the other side. Laying aside the sin and receiving God's word for you. Let's create a, a, a moment here as we close where you've, you've been listening a lot to me, but I want you to take a moment to listen to the Holy Spirit.
1: Hopefully you can.